Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime podcast. I'm Aryan, your host for this episode, and I'm Ashwarya. Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Patreon and subscribe for amazing exclusive features like merch, awesome extra episodes, early access episodes, video calls with us and more. To help the podcast out and to avail these benefits, go to www.patreon.com/desicrime. We'd also like to thank our two newest patrons, Gavini and Sankalp. Thank you for any and all contributions you make in helping run this podcast. It truly means the world to us. What's in a name? Astrologers would argue two syllables might entail your entire destiny. Such is the power of a name. But what if your life is the exact opposite of what your name suggests? Our protagonist today bears such a name. Her name is Jolly, Jolly Joseph. One of her neighbors went on record to say, "Quote: Jolly seemed like the perfect woman to us." End quote. If you didn't know any more about this case, you'd assume that praising a person in a true crime podcast implies that they are, quite frankly, the victim or soon to be the victim. Here you have a pretty girl; everyone loves her, and her name means happy. But I urge you to keep aside your preconceived notions for this episode. This is the story that till date shakes Keralites to their core. This is the story of Jolly Amma Joseph. So Ashwara, we waged this battle between our Apple Podcast listeners and our Spotify listeners, and I got a lot of messages <laughs> from our Spotify listeners saying, "Why do you not like us? We we are even more loyal to you," and they kind of <laughs> proved that by rating us five stars in hordes. So at the present moment, we are rated four point nine out of five with ten k ratings on Spotify. So I guess the challenge has flipped back to our Apple Podcast listeners who need to come out in an equal number and rate and review us five stars because I think I think our Spotify listeners are winning this one. They're winning. Yeah, I know. And I obviously love all of our listeners just the same, but the Spotify listeners have always surprised me with how quickly mm-hmm. and in how many numbers they've rated us and how well they've rated us. So if I ever want to feel good about the podcast, I usually go to Spotify. <laughs> so kudos to all of you that actually listen to us there because yeah, you guys are amazing. Speaking of feeling good about ourselves, Ashwara, something was in the news that was true yes, crime, but oh it's not a case that we can cover. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so we were actually featured in a BBC article, and that's huge. I think Aran and I, whenever we discuss kind of the big moments for this podcast, the moments we felt like we've made it, and that the podcast actually means something to other people, it's usually yeah. those moments where we see our names in these incredible journals, in incredible newspapers, incredible magazines by fantastic journalists, and BBC obviously. is one of those so it was really nice and we actually got one of our listeners to be interviewed for the article as well and yeah it seemed like a team effort with the listener and with us and it came mm-hmm. out really well 
Yeah, shout out to our listener, Sukoon, who gave that interview. And we've also included the link to that article in the bio of this particular episode. All right. So, Aran, let's move on to the episode for today. Jolly Joseph. I've heard this name so much. There's been a bunch of other podcasts that have covered this episode, but I've never gone into it. I have no idea what this case is. And I feel like there's kind of this disparity between South Indian news and North Indian news, where I don't necessarily get to hear as much of South Indian news as one would assume. And so you're taking us today to South India. So tell us, who is this woman and what's her story about? It's such a fantastic point you raise, Ashwara, about the South Indian and North Indian divide. While researching for this case, I came across so many anomalies within the North Indian reporting of this case, Mm -hmm. because the language, of course, Malayalam in Kerala is completely different (laughs) from what we speak here in the North. So, um, you know, be careful. I've been as careful as I could with the facts uh, and being accurate. Now, to South India. Kerala, a state in South India, is heralded as one of India's best states. Proud Keralites rightly point to their sky-high literacy rate, pristine upkeep of the environment, and the equitable female-to-male ratio, being one of the only Indian states to have more females than males. But I'm certain most Keralites would argue that they could do away with one particular female, whether or not it skews the ratio. For every thousand males born in Kerala, there are 1,024 females. I'm sure most Keralites would agree that they would have been just as happy with 1,023 females being born in the year 1972 if it meant that Jolly Amma Joseph wasn't born that year. Of all the things the folks from the state are proud of, Jolly Amma Joseph is not one of them. When Jolly was escorted by the police to her family's ancestral home in October of 2019, the locals shouted vulgar names at her and high praise as well, all at the same time. Some were in awe of Jolly, while others awestruck by what had happened to her. Nobody knew the truth of what had happened to Jolly. And that's the very reason why the police had brought her along for an evidence drive at Poonamattam. Poonamattam, that's the name of a two-story pink building in Kerala's town of Kozikod. That's the name of Jolly's ancestral property. This baby pink pastel shade could mislead the ordinary passerby. It looks like a gorgeous house that's home to a happy family. Except there's nothing infantile about this baby pink, nothing merry about this mansion. At present, it's a crime scene. But it wasn't always like this. The ordinary passerby two decades ago would have quite accurately judged the book by its cover. For this house was, in fact, a happy one. Merely 20 years ago, there were kids running around, grandparents nursing their progeny, lovers, well, busy making love, and a household that stood at the center of Kudathai, the small village in southern India where we find ourselves. But in 2019, 20 years on, when Jolly returned to her village, the once beloved pillar of the community was now attracting gazes for all the wrong reasons. Quote, the shrew who sullied the village's name, shouted one man. Sexual innuendos were thrown at her, kattapanna or high range. These remarks were juxtaposed with adulation. Quote, Jolly was always kind and welcoming, very social. You would find her at all sorts of public gatherings and marriages, interacting gracefully with people. Brave, shouted another woman. Quote, Jolly seemed like the perfect woman to us, remarked her neighbor. 
So, Ashwara, which one was it? Brave or bastardly? Sane or salacious? Gullible or guilty? The Cozy Code Rural Police was there to answer precisely that question. I don't know if I've learned anything from this podcast. It's usually that it's never one or the other. It's this combination of weird human traits and sometimes warped psyches that make perfectly normal people and criminals at the same time. And I think that's true for, I think, every single case we've ever covered. There are these happy families and loving couples and loving parents and good religious grounded people. And somewhere in them is this hint of darkness that brings us to all of our episodes somehow. So I'm going to say neither, but you give us that answer better. And yet, Ashwara, as much as I agree with the underlying emotion of that assessment, I would say still that there are some cases, very few in our catalogue of, I guess, 84 at this point, that do not seem as grey as normal crime should. Some, and I'm not going to name them because you're immediately going to associate them with this particular case. And it is, you know, it's a little similar to some of the cases we've covered. But some cases can be black and white. And I think this one just might convince you that it's Mm -hmm. more black and white than it is grey. I'm curious. So ground reality that day was such that hundreds of locals gathered in the streets of Kudathai, queuing up in the narrow, muddy lane that led to the now infamous mansion. But they weren't the only ones enthralled by this action. Eyes world over were glued to their TV screens. Across the globe, people were captured by the happenings of Kudathai, a small village in southern India. But what could have possibly gone down in this village for CNN to send its reporters to monitor the situation? Wow. To find the answer, like always, we turn our clocks back. It's 1997. The new century is peering over the horizon, dawning upon us. But the backwaters of Kerala remind you of a prehistoric piety. They somehow seem untouched by the turn of the century. Modernity evaded this part of India, not owing to poverty, but a conscious choice by the citizenry to have a simpler life. That year, in this quaint part of the world, was a small housewarming party. The party was organized by Matthew Manchitikar. At the party was our protagonist, 25-year-old Jolly Joseph, the eye candy of the party. Apart from her appearance, which men fawned over, she was a young, well-educated bachelorette. Present at the party was another handsome gentleman, and he too was well-educated, and he too was a bachelor. This was Roy Thomas, son of Matthew's brother-in-law. I wish the recipe for love was as simple as two tablespoons of being single and a teaspoon of good looks, but that (laughs) apparently sufficed in cooking up this particular love story, for the two soon became one couple. They fell head over heels in love with each other. Consider it a Romeo and Juliet saw the family backlash. In fact, if there was an antonym for family backlash, that's precisely what I would characterize this family's response as when just a year into being in love, Roy went to his parents, Tom Thomas and Annama Thomas, declaring his intentions to marry Jolly. And his parents were ecstatic upon hearing the news. Roy was their eldest son. And Tom and Annama couldn't have asked for a better bride. Pretty, educated and very social. But if this was good news for Roy's family, it was even better news for Jolly's family that they said yes 
You see, Jolly belonged to an agrarian farming family from Kattapanna in the south of Kerala. Jolly was the first to have received a full college education as well as a master's degree from her family. Roy, on the other hand, belonged to a well-to-do family. Not that the Thomases were millionaires, but social status in small villages in the south are as much a function of pesa as it is of prestige, and the Thomases were rich in the latter. Everyone from this family was very well educated, the only family in Kudathai to be so. Tom was a former teacher who retired as an officer from the state's education department, while Annamma too was a retired teacher who attended to young ones as a tutor now. Roy's younger siblings, a sister named Renji and a brother named Rojo, were well educated as well. Roy himself was working in Hyderabad at the time. Clearly, this was a distinguished household, and the locals duly conferred them this regard. Despite being one of the very few Christian households in this predominantly Muslim neighborhood, they garnered the majority's well wishes. In 1998, Jolly and Roy were married to each other. Jolly's parents happily gave two lakhs in dowry, a hefty sum in 1998, and were satisfied to know that their daughter was in good hands. Now, usually in most true crime stories, this is the point where the host is supposed to go, but little did Jolly's parents know that her soon-to-be mother-in-law was actually an evil sorceress. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's not what's happening here. I assure you, this gleeful image I have painted of Tom and Annamma checks out. In fact, it more than checks out. After her eldest son's marriage, Annamma used to brag about her daughter-in-law to their neighbors. "Quote: Roy has found a girl who's not only beautiful but has a university degree. I couldn't have asked for a better match for my son. She's the right choice for our family." End quote. Furthermore, she would encourage Jolly, "Quote: You must study further and find yourself a job. A woman must not spend her entire life caught up in domestic chores." End quote. Yeah, wow. I think this is a little abnormal even for our episodes where up until this point someone yeah. is starting to look a little sus, you know. Usually the family, one of the partners, like something's not off, they didn't want to be married, something's wrong, the parents hated the relationship, the girl's pregnant, like something is wrong. But yeah, this just sounds very perfect. Ashura, not to indulge too much in self-deprecatory humor, but I think we need to cover more episodes from South India because I think we are ingrained in the yeah. North Indian psyche. <laughs> That's where true. That's this, probably true. You know, we are expecting the in-laws to do something wrong or there to be dowry right. or something. But I think cases in South India operate on a completely different you know, plane of reality. Um, so, so it's a good cool. check yeah, for us. Yeah, I'm loving this. <laughs> Even when the 21st century was at the cusp of beginning, here's this retired rural woman who's encouraging her daughter-in-law, let alone daughter, to go work. And just as she wanted her daughter-in-law to work, she wanted her son to work as well. You see, Roy, soon after the wedding, lost his job in Hyderabad. The couple had to move back to their ancestral property, Poonamattam, with his parents. His parents were in their 50s, retired, sustained only by savings and a meager pension. Nevertheless, they welcomed their prodigal son with open arms. And they, in turn, welcomed their first baby boy, Romo. 
So here you have this amazing bride that has just given birth to the prized desi commodity, also known as a baby boy. And to further consolidate her nomination as the best bahu of the 20th century, she requests her in-laws in 1999 to enroll her in a bachelor's of education degree so she could become a teacher. Whatever I have said up to this point, Ashwara, is 100% true and happened. In fact, I'm not making that up. Isn't she wonderful? And isn't this family just amazing? Right? Wouldn't you want to be a part of this joint family? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This is every, I guess, woman getting married's dream come true. And it's sad that this has to be the dream come true and not the standard in India. But unfortunately, it yeah. is. But yeah, to have supporting parents-in-laws and to have yeah. the ability to complete your education is a privilege to so many women. And the fact that she had mm-hmm. it, yeah, it sounds like she pretty much got it all. Yeah. And if that's considered, you know, baseline civility in a family where a woman should be afforded the Mm -hmm. same rights as a groom, so to say, this family went one step beyond, you know, to her request to join a degree course in education, her in-laws happily helped finance it themselves. Clearly, this was a liberal household and clearly Annama was a delightful and wise woman. Not only did she carry the family's finances and management, she was a sought-after counsel for friends and locals alike. Which is why what happened in 2002 not only shook the Thomases, but the entire village of Kudathai. In August of 2002, Annama was in the living room of that very same two-story house. She was having lunch with her now-confidant Jolly, probably glossing over the day's remaining chores. As the two ate mutton soup, Annama, who was 57 at this point, felt weird. You know that feeling right before a mild earthquake where you're not sure if it's nausea yeah. or a tremor? You doubt mm-hmm. your very own instincts, you know. A couple of weeks ago, in fact, Ashwara, Delhi NCR was rattled by one such tectonic aberration. And I was finishing up some work in my 19th floor flat and I was in a similar predicament. I felt my apartment was swinging but thought I was nauseated. Turns out it was an earthquake after all. Unlike me, however, Annama didn't experience a transitory tremor. She was, in fact, nauseated. And the nausea soon culminated into falling to the floor, convulsing in catatonic motions and frothing at her mouth. Jolly was shell-shocked. She gathered her wits about herself, called her family and the requisite authorities and rushed her mother-in-law to the hospital. Annama, aged 57, died en route. The doctors discovered the cause to be a heart attack. 57 is a tad too young for a heart attack maybe, but Annama was suffering from other ailments that could have confounded a cardiological event. Whatever the underlying physiological cause may be, the Thomas family had lost its matriarch. We often take for granted the role played by the homemaker, especially in a large joint family. A family unit is not very different from, say, a company. And every company requires an overarching managerial position that keeps the unit functioning. The homemaker, especially in Desi households, is both the CEO and the clerk responsible for furnishing high-level tasks such as family finances, property paperwork, social commitments, while also heading the more menial day-to-day chores, you know, cleaning the house, serving meals, and being a loving wife, loving mother, and loving mother-in-law. So in losing Annama, the family had lost a long-reigning executive, and a vacancy had opened up. A vacancy to head the Thomas family. But who could occupy this position? 
You'd assume her husband would make a natural contender. But the aged education officer was in grieving. And this grieving did not seem to end. He was a battered soul who never recovered from this heartbreak. He well and truly loved his wife and was left fending for himself all alone. Let alone heading a family, he was too broken to take proper care of himself. Well, you then have Roy, the beloved eldest son. But this beloved gentleman is unemployed. Since losing his Hyderabad job and lazily frolicking about in his parents' mansion, all he has managed to add to his portfolio are several failed business ventures. Forget adding money to the family's treasury, he was busy borrowing it and burying it away in failed startups. Well, that leaves his younger siblings who were, well, younger siblings. No one gives a shit about what younger siblings have to say because their opinion, <laughs> frankly, is redundant. From one older sibling to another, Ashwarya, I, I know you agree with me. Absolutely. Younger siblings are like the little teddy bears just kind of roaming around in families. No matter how old they are, no matter what they're doing, they're still just the cute ones you go to, you know, you pull their cheeks and that's about it. Yeah, that's pretty much what they were born to do. Um, uh-huh. So <laughs> that's why they couldn't become matriarchs or patriarchs of the Thomas family. So... That leaves us with Jolly Joseph. Not only was she following the footsteps of her mother-in-law by becoming a beloved socialite in the Kudathai community, she had recently done what her husband couldn't do. She got a job. Jolly got a job first as a teacher within a week upon Annama's insistence around 2000. Well, this wasn't surprising since she had both a bachelor's in commerce, a postgraduate master's degree, and by now a bachelor's in education. Soon after, she scored another job. And this one was a biggie. She got the job of an assistant professor at the National Institute of Technology, Code. This was a high honour. It was a continuation of the academic legacy Tom and Annama had heralded. So, after Annama's passing, it was only natural for folks to want Jolly to carry the baton of the familial facet of Annama's legacy. But it's not like she was vying for this executive role of this family. Her family wanted her to occupy this position. They trusted her. The community trusted Jolly. But this was just the start of the Thomas family's troubles. The dawn of the new century didn't prove favourable for them. As one of their neighbours, 39-year-old Mohammed Bava recounts, quote, There was no happiness in the house like how there used to be when Annama Thomas was alive. Bava's assessment was proved correct. The heartbroken Tom succumbed to his emotional injuries not soon after. On August 26, 2008, Tom Thomas fell unconscious in the very same pastel pink home where his wife had fallen unconscious in a similar fashion just a few years ago. The 66-year-old was dead by the time he reached the hospital. Cause of death? Heart attack. Before dying though, Tom was cognizant of his family's decline. He observed how his unemployed son had taken to alcohol. Roy found solace in whiskey. Several glasses at night and some in the morning dictated his daily routine. In the years leading up to Tom's death, he also got closer to Jolly. He trusted her and she trusted him. He insisted she upgrade her scooty to a Honda City car so her commute to NIT in the mornings could be easier. He sold a few acres of one of his properties and transferred 18 lakh rupees directly into Jolly's account. I must reiterate, there was no coercion. This was out of his free will. 
A couple of years before his death, Tom also got the chance to meet his second grandchild. Another baby boy was born to Roy and Jolly in 2004. They named him Roland. Now, let's come back to 2008, to the very day Tom Thomas is being cremated. Let me try and explain the family tree, or well, at least what remains of the Thomas family tree by going over those present at his funeral. So you have the usual suspects, Roy, the eldest son, his wife Jolly, and their two sons grieving their grandfather's untimely demise. Assembled there are Roy's siblings, Rojo and Renji. You also have Roy's uncle Matthew Manjadil present at this funeral. Matthew is Tom's brother. Seeing your own brother in a casket is perhaps one of the more painful human experiences. Nevertheless, Matthew was there to support the family. In fact, this is the very same Matthew that is responsible in some sense for this family to exist in the first place. He's the very same Matthew whose house party brought Roy and Jolly together. How cute. There's always like familial divine intervention and matchmaking whether intentionally or unintentionally in Desi love stories. So, cute. I would agree on the intervention bit. I I would um question the divinity aspect because I don't <laughs> think this intervention was the most divine as you'll soon find out. Now, sure at the family tree that I point out, it is important. The eldest of the family have died. The Thomas lineage is in decline and the social fabric keeping them together is slowly tearing apart. And usually what turns to be the blade that makes the first cut in such cases is property disputes. Thankfully, Tom had his will ready to go. The Huffington Post reports that at the Lordes Martha Church Cemetery after the cremation, Roy and Jolly presented Tom's will to Rojo and Renji Thomas. The will, according to HuffPost, who has access to it, is a quote neatly typed document in Malayalam that has Tom's photograph and what is purportedly his signature. An English translation of the document reads, "I am being looked after by my son Roy Thomas and his wife Jolly Roy. I am writing this will because I am certain that they will provide for me even henceforth. After my death, the existing ownership of the property will be transferred to Roy Thomas and Jolly Roy." this will be effective only after my death end quote the property being referred to is 38.5 cents of land on which the family's two story home stands much like an acre or a hectare cent is a unit of measuring land used in southern india one cent is equal to 1/100 of an acre okay this is all a little sus maybe i'm just finding things to be suspicious about but i just feel like and you mentioned over and over again that none of this was coerced but i don't know it feels like too much faith and support in just two people one of whom wasn't even helping that much he was jobless and almost an alcoholic it seems like too much faith in just one woman but maybe i'm wrong for starters i mean he was definitely an alcoholic by this point but you're right yeah. it just seems like there is too much love and there is yeah, too much too faith yeah too much love yeah yeah it's it's the too good to be true angle really stands out but again i'm mm-hmm. painting all the facts for you i'm i'm not distorting it to paint a false picture so up to this point all the faith has been invested duly there there has been no coercion so even if you feel there is something wrong as relative soon will it's a baseless instinct that we have sure 
thanks to this will though, whatever little stability that remained in this household was kept intact. Rojo and Renji might have been put to ease, but Matthew, Tom's brother, was unnerved. Something was off. Much like what you felt, Ashwarya, Matthew too felt that something was off. He didn't know what. Again, it was an instinct. But curiosity got the better of him. His suspicion landed on Jolly. Frankly, I am surprised that no one has batted a suspicious eye at Jolly. Not because Jolly has done anything wrong, simply because I have a baseline expectation of sexism and territorial protectiveness from the males of a Desi family. But like I said, this suspicion was baseless. It was born out of the human need to explain tragedy. There must be a greater reason. These can't be anomalous heart attacks happening to a relatively young couple. Or so Matthew thought. If you thought the turn of the century bore bad luck, the onset of the new decade, ergo 2010, wasn't any different. Actually, let me make a correction. It was a bit different. It was much, much worse for the Thomases. Roy tumbled down deeper into the trenches of alcoholism, joblessness, and ultimately hopelessness. Jolly was raising two kids and a family all by herself. Rojo, Roy's brother, was working in the United States. Their sister Renji was working in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Jolly herself was still at NIT Cozy Code. Despite the husband being at home and the family being in financial straits, it didn't seem like it was affecting Jolly's lifestyle. It seemed like her teaching position and her father-in-law's will left enough for her to maintain her lifestyle. But 2011 stirred the family Yet again, yet again, another incision was made in the social fabric. This time, it was Roy. No. This was no longer a well-knit family. On September 30th, 2011, Roy came back to the Ponamattam house around noon to have lunch. Around 3.30, he ate his lunch and then he busied himself with household chores until the evening came along. Jolly cooked food, laid it out on the table, and went upstairs into the kids' bedroom to put them to sleep. Roy then went to the bathroom, presumably to wash his hands before he ate dinner. But he wasn't even afforded the luxury of a final supper because he never came out of that bathroom. Loud noises coming from downstairs caught Jolly's attention. Instead of lullabies, she hurried to the source of the sound, which was coming from behind the locked bathroom door. The bathroom had been locked from the inside. She immediately called their neighbor, Mohammed Baba, who helped break open the door, and they found Roy knocked unconscious, covered with putrid puke all around. What? He was rushed to the hospital. Again, in an eerie coincidence, the frothing body was a corpse by the time it reached the hospital. At age 40, Roy Joseph had seemingly died of a heart attack. Within a matter of a decade, three members of the same family who were more or less middle-aged dying of unprecedented cardiovascular events. Is that possible? And if it is, what are the odds? I'm guessing the odds are the same as lightning striking you while you're underwater in an insulated swimsuit on a sunny day. <laughs> Yeah, it might be possible, but it sure as hell is highly unlikely. That's precisely what must be gushing through Matthew and Rojo's heads. Matthew lost his brother and now his nephew. Rojo lost his father, mother and now his brother. This time, the family, led by Matthew, demanded an autopsy. 
keep in mind ashwar in the previous two deaths when the mother and father passed away the doctors declared a heart attack purely based on the symptoms that were presented in the corpse there was no autopsy there was no postmortem and that that is protocol it's not out of the ordinary the postmortem is only right. conducted if the family requests one and there was no seeming need to conduct a postmortem right exactly and the parents were kind of at that age they were bordering that kind of right. late period of their life age where yeah sure it's unlikely that they both died of a heart attack but not super 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 unlikely like it's seen off enough but this is the point exactly where they are raising alarm where i would also raise alarm this is too much this is too much of a coincidence all of them with the frothing around their mouth all of them with a heart attack this is a young man sure he was drinking and this that and the other but until i guess jolly also dies of a heart attack i will not be convinced that she didn't have something <laughs> to do with this <laughs> you know you are right you know the parents dying the odds of that while you know less are the same as i would say thunder striking if you're under a tree during a thunderstorm it's sure, you know yeah. it can happen right but i think my analogy for the three of them dying in similar the situations i think still day. stands yeah. true yeah yeah insulated mind you you know particularly preventative against lightning <laughs> all right the thomases were eager to know what exactly is causing these untimely deaths yes the symptoms do fit the bill of a heart attack but they want a definitive proof of the cause one that a postmortem can yield easily the autopsy was conducted at the cozy code medical college the anatomical analysis didn't reveal anything untoward and as is protocol blood work was sent for a toxicology assessment and lo and behold it came back positive for a toxin and not just any toxin one of the deadliest cyanide the source compound of the cyanide was potassium cyanide matthew and rojo knew they were onto something this wasn't a heart attack the story that jolly kept insisting on but eventually Jolly confessed. She agreed that it wasn't a heart attack after all. It was a suicide. Alcoholism, debt, joblessness and the death of his parents had pushed Roy into depression. He couldn't handle the stress and shame of all the failed businesses and failing marriage, consequently killing himself. Moreover the door was locked from the inside and the last meal he had eaten was at 3:30 p.m. that day cyanide is a very very fast acting poison if anyone suspected jolly of anything unbecoming of her character they need to explain how roy died hours after his last meal behind a locked door frankly there were no explanations jolly begged roy's family to not open an investigation into the suicide aspect quote You can go back home after complaining. It is up to me to raise two boys who have lost their father. A police case would be a shame on them. End quote. What do you think about this stance, Shweta? Do you think there is any merit to this claim? Yeah, I feel like the fact that she is apprehensive isn't completely unjustified. Again, it's not a completely unique feeling to have if you truly do believe you're innocent. Um I can see how this would bring shame on a family. Obviously, it would. It's a small knit community you mentioned. Uh they were already a well-respected and known household. Everyone would know about it. So all of this obviously kind of gives legitimacy to her argument, but I don't think I fully buy it. Like obviously this is suspicious. These are three people all of whom have died the exact same way. One of them had cyanide mm-hmm. in his system. Uh so if anything, she should perhaps want an investigation. 
but her apprehension seems off to me. Yeah, and also worth noting is that cyanide was found in the only person on whom a postmortem was conducted. So yes, while the three died of similar causes, right. the only person on whom a postmortem was conducted had cyanide. What if an right, autopsy so, was conducted on the other two? Exactly, but again, that's yep. just speculation, right? And hindsight is twenty twenty. And once you start getting conspiratorial, you can come up with a bajillion theories to, right. you know. Uh, confirm your preferred theory but as for jolly she wanted the death of her husband to be left as it is that's what she told the neighbors in fact bava ishwara the very man who helped jolly out in a time of need was kept under the impression that roy had died of a heart attack for the longest time but our objective lens doesn't coincide with the lens of a grieving family why did Jolly lie about Roy's death and let this go to a postmortem when she claims to have known this was a suicide from the get-go? Why lie to the family? Yeah, no, the lie is really weird to me as well. You would know that your husband of so many years committed suicide, but you would say it wasn't. And then hmm. you would once there's an autopsy conducted. Yeah. I don't know. Weird. Yeah. Especially, especially to the close ones, you know, if if you want to be kept a secret yep. for the larger community out there, at least let his brother and sister and his uncle know the truth. Shortly after Roy's death, Jolly presented Rojo and Renji with another will, another rendition of Tom's will. But they had already seen Tom's will at his funeral three years ago. Why is Jolly showing them the same document again? Because... It wasn't the same document. It was a wee bit different. Apparently, it was a more recent version of Tom's will that Jolly got access to after Tom had died. Liar. Of course, Tom's spirit didn't come back to sign it, but nevertheless, his signature was there on it. What it didn't have were the signatures of witnesses, which is a prerequisite for a legitimate will. Nor was there a date on it. Moreover, this will, this rendition of the previous will, stated that not only were 38 cents of the Poonamattam property jollies, the remaining 50 cents of this property were also to be divided equally among the three children, which meant that Roy's share from that 50 cents would de facto belong to Jolly now. Puzzled by the lack of witnesses on this will, Rojo and Renji prodded Jolly. Not soon after... Jolly produced yet another will, this time with a date and with witnesses' signature. Except these witnesses were absolute strangers. The Thomases didn't know the people who attested that will. Now, a can of worms has been opened. There was no closing it. To quote Jeanette Winterson, the curious are always in danger. If you're curious, you might never come home. In 2014, February 24th, Matthew did in fact return home, but he never stepped out of it again. He too died of an apparent heart attack. No postmortem was done. Four deaths, three confirmed heart attacks, one suicide guised as a heart attack, all from one family. What is happening? Rojo from the US and Renji from Colombo had had enough. Matthew's death was the final straw. How is it possible that the main person leading the charge for an investigation into Roy's death dies while enjoying a glass of whiskey in his own living room? And worse, what the hell is up with their ancestral property? 
This is their property. They are the Thomases. Jolly isn't blood and it's not fair that she gets a majority of the property, along with several other assets as well as their parents' pensions, all because of a flimsy will signed by strangers. Rojo tried to file a case for forgery and making a fake will years after Roy's death. The property dispute flared by these flimsy documents ensued for years. Rojo was limited in what he could do from the US and Jolly was a well-known and loved person in the locale. To remotely fight against her for land continents apart wasn't pragmatic. Around 2019 though, Rojo was successfully able to file a case in the Cozy Court Police regarding forgery of a will. But while he was in India, he also started asking questions about his brother's death. Something didn't sit right with him. He wanted to himself go over the post-mortem report. He wanted to read it with his own eyes. But getting a copy of the post-mortem report turned out to be an absolute hassle. Rojo met with peons and staff at government offices that called Jolly, Jolly Teacher, for such was a stronghold on this community. Oh my god. Finally, through a right to information appeal, Rojo got access to his brother's autopsy report. But it was the same as last time. Cause of death, cyanide poisoning. But as he sieved through the details, Ashwarya, he found one sentence that changed the course of this investigation, this family and Kerala all together. The autopsy stated that Roy's last meal was rice and chickpea and his last meal was at 8.30pm. This means Roy did have a last supper. Lunch at 3.30 wasn't his last meal as Jolly was telling Mm. everybody. He did eat the food that night prepared by Jolly. And Jolly lied about it. Do rice and chickpea kill people? No, not exactly. But if you mix cyanide into it, yes, it does. Tune in to the next episode to find out what went down in that baby pink mansion called Poonamattam in Kozikod in Kerala. Until then, stay safe, stay crazy and stay desi. Thank you.